And so let us hear then God's word. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, since I have uh, come here and been with you these now 20 years, we've uh, gone through a number of books uh, in the, uh, the preaching of the Word. And in the morning, we have looked at First Peter and Genesis and Matthew and Exodus and Acts and now this uh, selection of the Psalms. And uh, in the evening, we've gone through all the minor prophets as well as James and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, Jude, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First Samuel. And then First and Second Thessalonians and First Timothy. And now we are in the midst of Titus. I've done some shorter studies on Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Hebrews. And so altogether then, 18 books in the Old Testament, plus the Psalms, 12 books in the New Testament, plus Titus and uh, the shorter studies. Um, and so we are making our way here through the scriptures, and we come here now to the book of Romans. Uh, we have reviewed here most recently then the uh, 20% of the Psalms, covering the main themes of the Psalter. And uh, even as I mentioned last week, many people have considered the Psalter as the most important book of the Old Testament. Well, as we shift now to the New Testament, many people have said that the book of Romans is the most important book. Now, all the books of the Bible are important. It's hard to make this claim. And yet, you can understand why people say that the book of Romans is so significant. Romans has been studied, preached on, and written about more than any other book of the Bible. It is so significant that major movements have begun in the study of Romans. Obviously, the Reformation is one of those. And many individual conversions and smaller movements in local churches or even in families have been caused in, in many ways due to the study of Romans. Tens of thousands, literally, of people have written on Romans, either commentaries or articles or whatever over the centuries. The history of interpretation is incredibly vast, and uh, we cannot review them all. In fact, one of the commentators I'm using, Dr. Douglas Moo, has 124 pages of bibliography, which are the commentaries and and the uh, articles and so forth. Over 2,200 sources just for his commentary. This is a a vast, vast study because of its importance. Now, as I often do, I tell you here at the beginning which sources I am using to help guide me in my study. Uh, Because of the significance of Romans, I'm using 12 sources. And as I typically do, I use the Reformation Study Bible and the NIV Study Bible. I use my seminary notes, and here it's Dr. Knox Chamblin, who has gone on to be with the Lord. I use the one-volume Bible commentary, which uses Francis Davidson and Ralph P. Martin as the the contributors for Romans. I use two Bible background commentaries, one by InterVarsity and the other by Lawrence Richards. And then I'm using a a, uh, book that has a compilation of authors where they they 
look at how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. And here in Romans, Paul uses the Old Testament about 60 times. And so this is going to be a very helpful uh, study. It's by a man named Seafred. Uh, and then I'm using five commentaries. And uh, I'm sure you've heard of some of these names. Uh, Dr. Charles Cranfield and his two-volume work. Dr. Douglas Moo, as I mentioned. John Stott, John Murray, and James Montgomery Boyce. Now, in that list, uh, especially if you're familiar with some of these names, you will recognize that some of them have some different views. And I do that intentionally to help me to better understand the text and so I can get at uh, the, the right understanding here. Now, let me read here a moment from Dr. Boyce. And many of the commentaries uh, said something similar. And he here quotes from three men. First of all, he says, from Martin Luther. Luther called Romans the, quote, chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. Every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, and occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. Certainly a challenge for us to commit this to our memory, let alone our understanding. And then Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the English poet, called Romans, quote, the profoundest book in existence. The great Swiss commentator Frederick Godet wrote that in all probability, quote, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of this book. John Stott says, beware, this book changes people. Now, in my own life, uh, I studied Romans in some detail, uh, primarily during my first year of seminary, and not as a class, just as uh, my devotions. And I used um, five uh, sources at the time, uh, most notably John Stott and James Boyce's commentaries. Um, and uh, certainly it, it was... Uh, incredibly important in my understanding. At the time when I went to seminary, I was kind of a hybrid, reformed, evangelical Arminian, if you will. Uh, and my study of Romans helped me to become much more consistently reformed, uh, not just my classes there. Now, I, I'm not exaggerating here, but literally every word in Romans is debated. Some of those words just mildly debated, and some, though, greatly debated. Some words or clauses or phrases or even whole sections and chapters have three or seven or twelve different positions or even more. Every denomination varies on certain aspects of this book, most notably in chapter seven in regard to the law, chapter nine in regard to election. Chapters 9 through 11 in regard to the place of Israel in the history of redemption. People have used Romans to uh, lay the foundation of the Reformation and the five solas as we know it, right? The scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, and to God alone be the glory. But on the other hand, Romans has been used to justify the the justification-sanctification link, like in the Catholic Church or in the Federal Vision 
that we have today. Uh, Some use Romans to justify hyper-Calvinism, as we would call it. Others use it to justify the Arminian view. It's been used here recently for the new perspectives on Paul, and even now in our current day with woke theology. And so James Boyce took eight years to preach through Romans. I could easily spend a month or more just on verses 3 and 4 here in chapter 1. I could give you the seven main views of what the obedience of faith means in verse 5. I could give you literally the dozens of suggestions for what spirit of holiness refers to in verse 4. But I'm going to do my best here to simplify this for us. We could be here literally for years and years, and and I could be here giving you all kinds of different views, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to primarily focus on what I think is the main point. There will be times, yes, I'll give you some different options, but I'm going to spend most of my points, uh, my time with you on what I think the main point is and what has historically been the reform position and so forth. And so, with some of this as a a background, an initial thought here in the book of Romans, I encourage you to try to study this more as we go through it. I can only give you a few minutes once a week. Uh, This is something that will benefit every one of us if we were to take the time and, and study it in more depth, especially if you have not yet done this. Well... With that in mind, as usual, and as I already indicated at the beginning, um, I, I think it's actually very significant and important that whenever we begin a new book, and in the Psalms, I did it for every Psalm in roughly five or ten minutes, but here as we start this book, giving you the big picture, giving you some of the main uh, broad views, the narrative that surrounds the book, will help us to better understand the particulars. And in fact, I would say it's essential. And if we don't do this to some degree, we're not going to understand things as well as intended. So, with this in mind then, let's start with the question of who. Who wrote the book of Romans? Well, obviously God did, the Holy Spirit. And as it says here in verse 1, he used the Apostle Paul. Now, Of all the debates that we hear in Romans, this actually is not debated very much. Even among the most liberals of scholars and so forth, there's really no debate in regard to Paul being the author. In fact, one liberal scholar said, anybody who denies this is just, you know, basically out to lunch. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but um, no one's really questioned this over the 2,000 years, and it's in large part because Paul's words here are similar to other words he gives. And by the second century, there were many people who were quoting from it and saying Paul wrote it. And so we have abundant evidence outside of the scriptures that point in this way. All right, now in regard to Paul himself, I'm not going to say really anything because we know who he is. We have gone uh, through the book of Acts and so we've looked very carefully at who Paul the Apostle is, we've looked at some of his other books. So it's this man converted on the Damascus Road and so on. All right, now let's turn to chapter 16 here a moment. 
And in verse 22, we have these words. Romans 16, <clears throat> verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, simply, Tertius is the big fancy word we use for this is amanuensis. He's the recording secretary, more or less. He wrote it down, but Paul's the one who actually gave these words. Now, we know historically that uh, these recording secretaries could put in some of their own ideas. But as you compare Romans to other works, especially the ones where we know he used a recording secretary, like Silvanus, for example, um, and we read that in First Thessalonians here just a moment ago, uh, the, the ideas are so similar. The language is similar and even identical. And so uh, this tells us that Tertius basically is writing down what Paul wanted. He didn't add any of his own thoughts, except for verse 22 here in chapter 16. All right, well, let's move then now to the question of when and where. When was this book written and where was Paul? So let's turn now to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> the text is very um, brief here, uh, but we have uh, things outside of the scriptures that point in this direction as well. But in Acts 20, let's start in verse 1. It says, after the uproar had ended or ceased, right? Remember, Paul's in Ephesus and there's the riot and so on. Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. That's all it says. Right, now, we, through, what did you say, Sue, earlier, sanctified wisdom and uh, historical context, uh, we believe that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians when he was in Ephesus. This is his third missionary journey. As he leaves here and is going up to Macedonia, he writes um, 2 Corinthians. And when he gets to Greece, and certainly that included Corinth, we believe that's when he wrote the book of Romans. So he's on his third missionary journey. This would have been during the winter months, these three months where Paul could not travel. And so he writes the book of Romans at this point in time. Now, as we combine this with some other places in the scriptures, as well as some things outside of the scriptures, uh, especially as we look at the events of Claudius, Caesar, when he kicked the Jews out of Rome in the 40s, in particular 49 AD, and that was over debates regarding Christ, and compared also to Gallio and Achaia. You might remember the mention of Gallio when uh, Paul was in Corinth there in the second missionary journey. And remember Festus when he was in prison in Caesarea. As we look at those three men and the historical evidence that we have in, the, uh, in, in uh, our understanding from that, most people then place Paul here in Corinth somewhere between 54 and 59 AD. And most of those will zero in on the winter of 55-56 or 56-57. I lean toward the latter in my understanding. And so uh, it was likely sent then in the early months of 57 AD to Rome. All right, now, the next related question is, when did the church in Rome form? When was it established? And who did it? Well, let's turn here back to Romans and chapter 15 now. 
Romans 15. And I do want to return to this, this passage here in a few moments. Uh, but in this context, if we look at verse 20, Romans 15, verse 20 says, So I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. In other words, Paul does not like to go and plant churches where someone's already been. Makes sense. You want to go to other places so more people can hear the truth. And so this indicates to us then that an apostle had not yet been to Rome. The apostles went other directions. Now the Catholic Church insists that the church was in Rome was planted by Peter. Now we do know that Peter went to Rome. But according to what Paul says here, by the early, early months of 57 AD, Peter hadn't been there yet. Because why would Paul go there, based on what he says here? Okay. Well, that still leaves the question then, who planted the church? If it wasn't an apostle, then who was it? Well, two things here. First, let's go back to Romans 1. Okay, the obvious point here first. In Romans 1, if you look at verse 13, Romans 1, verse 13, Paul says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as the other Gentiles. Clearly, Paul is indicating he hadn't been to Rome yet. Okay. So Paul's writing to a place he had never been. All right, now let's turn to Acts chapter 2. And this more specifically answers our question. Okay. Acts chapter 2. This, of course, is Pentecost. And note verse 5, first of all. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Right? They have come for the feast of Pentecost. And so all these Jews scattered throughout the Roman world and so forth came to Jerusalem to celebrate. All right, the Spirit comes. People start speaking in tongues. Hey, note especially verse 10. There's a list of all these peoples, right? You see that especially in verses 9 and 10. And at the end of verse 10, it says, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Now, remember that proselytes were Gentiles who became Jews, basically. And then in verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So at Pentecost, they were speaking known languages, okay? So that would have included Latin, right? The people of Rome would have understood this. Now, to our point, obviously, these men then, and uh, possibly women and families and such, whoever was there, they heard the gospel and then took it back to Rome with them. Now, Rome was obviously a, a hugely important city, and so other travelers likely came and brought the gospel at a later time. But we believe that the church, can you say, formed on its own, so to speak? No apostle went there to specifically plant a church. But God, in his providence, here brought people uh, to Jerusalem, who then brought the gospel back to Rome. Now, we believe in the first century there were about 5% of the Roman population there in Rome were Jewish. That was about 50,000 people, we think. Um, and so some of them came to faith. But as more of them came to faith, 
and other Jews did not believe, it created more and more tension. And so throughout the 40s, there were problems. And by 49 AD, Claudius said, enough of this, and he kicked all the Jews out. And so up to that point, it is very likely that the church in Rome was mostly Jewish Christians. Okay? And then he kicks them all out, and then the Gentiles are left. And so then by 54 AD, when Claudius dies, now the Jews start coming back. And so for a few years then, there is this mixture of Jew and Gentile in a new way, and it led to some problems. And so by the time Paul writes Romans, we believe, as you read through the, 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 uh, the epistle here, that most of the believers in Rome were Gentiles at this point, but it certainly was a mixture. Now, because of the number of Jews there and the size of Rome, there were probably several house churches, maybe dozens, we don't know. But here are a few words in regard to the beginning of the church in Rome. And so it's quite possible that the church had been in existence for 25 years or more by the time Paul wrote his letter. All right. Well, here's some background, some history and and chronology and so forth. Let's now talk briefly about the reasons why Paul wrote this letter. So let's turn back to Romans chapter 15. All right. There's a very, if you will, practical purpose here, first of all. Romans 15 and beginning in verse 22, Paul says this. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. All right, simply, right, again, Paul had never been there, and he's telling them, hey, I'd like to come, and note his primary point. As you read the next verses, he's got to go to Jerusalem first. He's going to take this money gift to the people there who are struggling with this famine, and then he wants to come to Rome, and he wants to visit with them, but notice, he wants to make Rome a new hub for him, right? As it says here, um, to be helped on my way there by you. It sounds like it's more than just helping, but similar to what happened in Antioch. You remember in Antioch, that was the sending church for Paul on his missionary journeys. He would start there, he'd go to the various places and come back to Antioch. He wanted to do something similar here with Rome because he wanted to go westward. It's an awful long way from Antioch to Spain. So he wants to use Rome as his hub, as it were. And presumably, he probably had in mind going to other places after that. And so he's wanting uh, to write this letter to basically let him know that this is what he would like uh, from them. But in so doing... As we read through the letter here, we see that Paul is defending himself in certain ways. It is a kind of polemic, but it's also a kind of defense, an apology for himself. Surely the people had heard of Paul, and surely the people had at least heard the ideas that Paul was um, not very favorable to the Old Testament. 
that Paul was against the Jews and the law and Moses and so forth. And so part of what he's doing here is saying, that's not true. I am actually orthodox. And so he gives us this quite involved description of the gospel message. And he is saying, I am not against the Jews. I am not against the law. As I mentioned earlier, he quotes the Old Testament about 60 times. He refers to Adam and Abraham and <coughs> excuse me, Moses and David. <coughs> and so Paul here is defending his orthodoxy, defending his message that he is a faithful apostle. And so those first two ideas go together. And this is why he's writing the letter. Now, a third reason why he's writing this letter is that Paul is seeking now to bring the Jewish and Gentile believers together. As I just indicated, hey, there was some opposition. You had largely a Jewish church, we believe, initially. <clears throat> now it's largely a Gentile church. Some have even suggested that there were Jewish churches and then Gentile churches, kind of like we have black churches and white churches or something like that, right? And so Paul here is saying, wait a second, that, that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is bigger than this. Okay? This opposition needs to be rectified. We need to come together. Paul is seeking to unite Jewish and Gentile believers. And of course, Paul's really the best one for the job here, isn't he? Because he was a Jew, a faithful Jew, a Pharisee even. But he was also a Roman citizen, and he was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul understood these things. Of course, he was converted on the Damascus Road as a zealous Jew. That helped him to understand grace. It helped him to understand election, among other things. The gospel says, as Paul tells us in the first three chapters, that both Jew and Gentile are sinners. And then he goes on to say both are saved by faith in Christ. And that all believers actually descend from Abraham, whether physically or spiritually. And so that's really a summary of chapters 1 to 4. In chapters 9 to 11, he says, uh, or he answers the question, how the Jew and the Gentile fit together into God's overall plan. And so this is a very important purpose of writing this letter you will sometimes hear people say that Romans is kind of abstract it's a theological discourse well in some ways that's true but Paul is doing that to reconcile all these different peoples together we are united in the gospel so to the fourth point then let's turn to chapter one the theme of the book, the letter here, is found in verses 16 and 17. So Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Note how he's defending himself. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So you see that theme of, of unity. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So all right, salvation is not based on our efforts, but faith in Christ. 
Notice how he quotes the Old Testament. So even right here in these two verses, you can see some of these purposes coming out. Paul here in the book is writing about the righteousness of God, or as we say, the gospel. And he begins by talking about how we are declared to be righteous in Christ, and then he shifts to how we need to be righteous, okay, and how uh, we keep God's law and live righteously. So in a, in a sense, the letter of Romans is kind of abstract, it's speaking to these doctrinal things, but it is not a systematic theology, and there is a very specific purpose here of Paul, and I've brought some of that out already. All right, now, <clears throat> lastly then, uh, to go back to what I said before, no apostle had been to Rome yet, based on what Paul says. And so because of this, um, Paul probably gives a much more thorough explanation because there had been no apostle there to give it initially. And so that's good for us that he did that. Good in God's providence that we now have the most thorough explanation of the gospel anywhere in the scriptures, right here in the book of Romans. Add to that the fact that Paul had not been there. And so he doesn't address specific issues in the same way as he does in First and Second Corinthians or in uh, Galatians, or even First Thessalonians that we read before. Okay? And so because he's not addressing some specific things in that way, he speaks more generally and speaks to a broader issue. All right, so here are some of the main purposes, then, of Paul writing the letter. Now, let's pause and think about this a minute. Do you see how the two most beneficial things then from Romans are going to be this, going to be these? First of all, it'll help us to better understand what the gospel is. Many of us may think we know what the gospel is, but probably all of us here have more to learn about the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. It is far more than that. And so that's the first thing. It's going to be very practical in that way. And then do you see the other practical purpose of Romans for us today in our culture? The division in our culture is not Jew and Gentile. The division in our culture is actually many things, isn't it? Most notably, it's about race, right? All this racism stuff that they talk about. But there are economic divisions, gender divisions, there are denominational divisions. The only way to stop hate the only way to have world peace, the only way to solve this us versus them scenario is through the gospel. Now, maybe you've seen here in the last couple of days the, the author of Dilbert, you know, that, that comic. Uh, the author made some racist comments, and he's not going to be carried anymore by USA Today and all this sort of thing. And uh, yeah, maybe he overstated a few things. But one of the points that he said was... Um, it's okay for blacks to be racist, but not for whites. So that was one of the things that he said. But what I found so striking, the reason why I mention it is, he says, there is no hope to solve the division in our culture. It's gotten to the point where there is no way we're going to fix this problem. I'm like, uh, <clears throat> the gospel will. Jesus will. 
The only way we can solve the divisions in our culture is by looking to Christ, understanding the book of Romans, and living it out. Again, Paul's addressing Jew and Gentile division, but we can apply it in all kinds of things, including divisions in our own homes. You often hear people say, doctrine divides. I think more accurately it would be to say that bad doctrine divides, good doctrine actually unites. The divisions that we have in the churches is because of bad theology, as well as selfishness and so forth. But when we have good doctrine, we just read from the catechism a little bit ago, when we have good doctrine, that actually unites people. And that's what the book of Romans can do. If we're willing to sit at the feet of Paul and understand what he's trying to teach us. All right. Well, let's now take a moment and look at these outlines here. Hopefully you picked one up on the way in. And uh, obviously, I started doing this with the Psalms, and uh, I, I think it's actually very beneficial to put it in your hands instead of trying to do it from here. <laughs> um, I encourage you to stick this in your Bible. I refer to it at different times as we go uh, through this epistle. Notice that the first two are rather short and sweet. Okay? The third one you see there on the front page is much more detailed. And then if you turn the page over, you see another very detailed one, and then on to the second page as well. All right, now let me call to your attention just a couple things. First of all, notice how verses 1 to 17 stand out, and then chapter 15, verse 14, to the end of the book stand out. The main body of the letter is from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 15, verse 13. Now, I've said how much debate there is in Romans, but you see how unified these outlines are? The structure of Romans is very uniform from person to person. Really what changes primarily is just how to describe it. So I've given you a handful here to to help you to see and understand these things. The biggest debate is, should we divide the book between chapters 4 and 5 or or chapters uh, 5 and 6? That's the biggest debate on on how to uh, subdivide the book. The first three divide it between chapters 4 and 5. The last two between chapters 5 and 6. Okay. I think between chapters 4 and 5 is the best way of looking at it. Okay. All right. Now on the very back, you'll see here, uh, this is actually from my seminary notes from Dr. Chamblin. He handed this out. He liked structural analysis, and these kind of pictures, if you will. And so you see all these lines and arrows and boxes and so forth and how it all fits together. Notice how the first parts fit with the end parts of the letter and the main theme, verses 16 and 17, and how they're developed later on and so forth. Look, I only have a few minutes with you on Sunday. I cannot cover everything with you. Please take this. Read through Romans. Probably take you a half hour or so just to read right through it. Look at the outlines. Try to better understand 
right? This is God's word. This is what he wants us to understand. And, uh, and, and as you do so, it'll help you. Bigger picture, forest view, helps us to better understand when we're looking at the individual things. Okay, so um, <clears throat> that's all I'll say about this at this point, but we will refer to it uh, as we go uh, through the letter. All right, so in conclusion then, two thoughts. First of all, we are going to be talking about the theme of the person of Christ here in this epistle. But we're going to especially talk about the theme of the work of Christ. And that work, of course, is you, uh, the word that Paul uses is the work of righteousness and the work of the gospel. Gospel is more than just I'm a sinner and I'm justified by faith. It certainly includes that. And that's chapters 1 to 4. But it also includes sanctification, covenant of grace, union with Christ, salvation history, the call to obey, the call to be righteous. All of these themes are part of the gospel. All of these ideas are part of the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Redemptive history obviously is an important aspect here, as he mentions David and Abraham, and then especially chapters 9 through 11, and how the Jew first and then the Gentile fit into all of this. So these will be our themes. Let me end here then by reading from Dr. Boyce again. And this is from his introduction, and he says this, I confess that I have been instructed, moved, and even deeply stirred by my own studies of Romans. Above all, I have been convicted of how shallow I have been in my understanding of the gospel. Indeed, how shallow most of our evangelical Christianity, particularly in America, has been. Now, this was published in 91, so what would he say if he were still alive now 30 years later? And then he says, I used to say that American Christianity had mastered Romans 1 to 4, right? Sin, justification, faith. But I had not begun to understand Romans 5 to 8, not to mention the remainder of the letter. But today I'm not sure that we have even mastered the first four chapters. How often do we hear the depravity of the race discussed as Paul discusses it in Romans 1? How often do we hear that from God's perspective man is utterly depraved as Paul says in Romans 3? What do we hear? We're pretty good people. Unless you're on the wrong side. If you're an oppressor, no, but you know. You see the point here. We don't talk about depravity anymore, especially those in government. They're our friends. They're our servants, right? How often do we hear messages on propitiation, redemption, justification, or faith? The sexual doctrines of the great latter half of Romans 3. Most of us can't even pronounce some of these words. Or the proof of these truths from the Old Testament, which is the burden of Romans 4. Instead, we cling to man-centered, need-oriented teaching, and our churches show it. They are successful in worldly terms, big buildings, big budgets, big everything, but they suffer from a poverty of soul. All this means, in my judgment at least, that it is time to get back to the basic life-transforming doctrines of Christianity, which is to say that it is time to rediscover Romans. I would agree, and I would say... that we are even further down this road of the ignorance of the gospel 
in our culture broadly than when he wrote those words. It has been replaced with a um, woke gospel. It's been replaced with a works-oriented idea, with um, things that are really foreign to what Paul says. The church, the evangelical church broadly, is in a very, very uh, bad state in our culture. And so may Romans help us, and may it then go beyond us, to our children, our family, and at work, and beyond. And may God use this to change us, and to change those that we impact. And so a few thoughts here today, as we start this uh, vital book, and Lord willing, next week we'll jump into these first words of Paul uh, here in Romans 1. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you um, for the, the blessing of your word, and uh, we thank you especially here for uh, this book of Romans and uh, the, the truths found therein. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us in our study and that you would guide us to an understanding of your word that uh, is consistent with what you've intended. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored by it, that you would make us more like yourself, that you would not only improve our thinking and our minds and our understanding, but then may it impact everything in our lives. May it heal divisions, may it um, uh, extend your kingdom, may our study here together uh, honor you in the end. And uh, we pray for your mercies and your grace here in this way. Um, And so we pray these things then in Jesus' name, amen.